It's no longer a case of the haves or the have-nots. It's the haves and the have-nots alongside those who are underbanked, who don't have the financial collateral to take advantage of the new digital conveniences. It's about the people who live in rural America, like small farmers, who cannot grow their business nor participate in the emerging technologies of precision agriculture simply because they do not have broadband access. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Shot of Science. I'm Ana Rascuat-Paz, the engagement editor at NU Reviews. And in this episode, I caught up with Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee last November after a talk she gave at the second annual National Science Policy Network Symposium in Madison, Wisconsin. This is a meeting where researchers and scientists of all fields gather together to find better ways to communicate with policymakers. And this is very much relevant to Dr. Turner-Lee's work. She is at the Brookings Institution, and she studies how access to broadband affects economic equality. She's working on a book about it, so I asked her uh, to share some of the key findings. Listen up. Uh, It's titled, The Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. And it's really this portrayal into the U.S. digital divide and how it is less binary. It's no longer a case of the haves or the have-nots. It's the haves and the have-nots alongside those who are underbanked, who don't have the financial collateral to take advantage of the new digital conveniences. It's about the people who live in rural America, like small farmers, who cannot grow their business nor participate in the emerging technologies of precision agriculture simply because they do not have broadband access. This new digital divide is a complicated one because as we look at the future of work and we look at the emergence of artificial intelligence and autonomous systems, we're not going to have people who are going to be able to work in it because they've not had the opportunity to touch, feel, experience, create, uh, even consume in many cases these technologies. And that's the state of the new American digital divide, which I'll be talking about. It's based upon a seven-city tour around this country, um, and it also reflects on my international travel as to what digital equity looks like in America. So I'm looking forward to actually getting that out. How? What's the percentage of the like the people who are not online? So what we know from Pew in the last few years is that we're looking at about 13% of people that are really not online. These are people that have either no interest, no access, or they just don't understand the relevance of moving from an analog to digital economy. As a result of that, they actually are very much similar to the people that are currently disenfranchised or marginalized, disproportionately people of color, older Americans, people with disabilities, foreign-born, Um, as well as people who live in rural areas. So we've got a huge challenge. The last um, that we've read, we've got over 50 million uh, people that are just not online in some way because they can't get it, uh, because broadband doesn't come to their community, or they don't have the device to get on it. Or in many cases, they don't understand why they should even be a part of this digital economy. And so I think we really have to look carefully at this phenomena because what that means is we're going to create a larger uh, division of the haves and the have-nots and contribute towards, I think, the political, economic, and civic inequalities that really define who we are today. One of the issues that you talk about is privacy. Um, Can you tell us more about how privacy or lack thereof contributes to this divide? You know, privacy is a really important topic. I think a few years ago when Facebook was enthralled in the scandal with Cambridge Analytica and we found out that our data was being used for purposes that we did not approve of, um, that was one part of it. And within a 
six months, the European Union passed the General Data Protection Rules, the GDPR, which really put a standard on not just data collection and use, but sharing. Now we're at a stage in the United States where all these things have happened, and we still see the same infractions, whether it's your credit being hacked, or it's, you know, finding out through the news that Facebook has sold your data or mined it someplace else, where we don't have a federal privacy regime in place that brings some consumer protections. And so this is one of those areas that we need to pay attention to. It has some possible consequences, however. If privacy legislation is too harsh, it may not allow for the innovation that we're seeing in artificial intelligence that's heavily relied upon volumes of data to make those kinds of decisions, like machine learning algorithms. But the same token, what does it look like to have opportunities foreclose on you, your right to vote, you know, or your ability to vote or find your polling place or other areas in your life that are personal to you, your healthcare status being publicly placed on the back of envelopes, you know, mistakenly. These are all privacy infractions that matter to people. And the more sensitive that data, the more likely it has a long-term consequence. So we in the United States really do need to come up with federal privacy legislation that at least defines what is our baseline protection and what should consumers expect. We are going to take a quick break. Stay with us. What is known? What isn't known? Knowable Magazine, the award-winning journalistic publication from Annual Reviews, seeks to make that knowledge accessible to all. Knowable reports on the current state of play across a wide variety of fields, from agriculture to high-energy physics, biochemistry to water security, the origins of the universe to psychology. Every piece is deeply reported, fact-checked, and free to read and to republish. To stay in the know, head to knowablemagazine.org newsletter and sign up for the free Sunday newsletter today. We're back. Next, Nicole Turnerly discusses how bias is essentially embedded in machine learning technology. Um, you also talk about machine learning, AI, all of that, and how it contributes to the divide. So can you just kind of tell us quickly how what that means, basically, for a disenfranchised population? You know, machine learning algorithms are all around us. It determines what movies we watch on Netflix. It prioritizes our search and affinity groups on social media platforms. It uh, helps us in our navigation systems. You know, the data that's available powers, I think, these efficiencies through machine learning algorithms that make determinations and decisions that we engage in daily. 80% of the time, no problem. 20% of the time is where it actually gets hairy. And that's when the machine can make predictions based on your, for your uh, determination of credit, your determination of freedom, whether it's related to a criminal justice algorithm, employment, higher education decisions, all those decisions that are being streamlined through the automation process where there's some sensitivity and care because they matter, those decisions matter. And what we're seeing in machine learning algorithms is that we have the same issue that we have in an external space. Who is designing the algorithm? Are they representative of the people that the algorithm is affecting? Just a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times actually put out that the development of a risk score or an assessment based on the amount of money people pay towards health care was going to determine whether or not they would get into better programs to improve their health. What ultimately happened, because African Americans pay less into the health care system, they were actually being racially biased against and they were not being pulled into these programs that would help them with you know, chronic disease, diabetes, heart disease. So we've got to sit back and look at what might be the unintended consequences from models that don't necessarily take into consideration the type of data that they're using to develop those models. The um, 
placement of the context in which those models are deployed. We have a real pressing right here. This could become, you know, I hate to say it harshly, but the new Jim Crow of the 21st century that not only just affects African-Americans, but women and people from the LGBTQ community and people with disabilities and people over 55 that may not see advertisements for jobs for young people just simply because of what they like on social media platforms. We're dealing with, I think, the power of technology to reflect who we are in ways that we may not be proud of. And so going forward, Forward, I think it's important that we develop much more interdisciplinary conversations around this and better technical protocols to be able to de-bias algorithms before they create more consumer harm. One of the challenges is to legislate all of this because it's highly technical. Um, I can't think of a single representative in Congress who can understand these issues. So how do you how do you go about educating that crowd, the political crowd? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, unless you're a data scientist or you understand, you know, what this actually is happening under the hood or in the back box, it's really hard for you to understand. And there's proprietary nature of algorithms, too, that don't allow legislators to really unpack what they're actually feeling or experiencing. I think legislators at this point, probably their best aim is to get some explainability of outcomes. Uh, when you are denied a loan through your credit score not being high enough, you get a letter. You get some transparency around that. Potentially, that's one way for legislators to sort of come into this debate. Let me understand the outcomes. Why did this happen? And this gets more complicated because it's not just did it happen to one person, but it has to happen to a collective group to be considered disparate impact. I think the other thing that legislators can do is ensure that the anti-discrimination laws actually apply to the online space. Many of these laws were litigated before the internet, and we really should not dismiss their value um, in terms of what they were trying to protect people against, particularly federally protected groups when it comes to harm. So ensuring that legislators engage that simple dialogue as to whether or not laws like the Employment Act, the Fair Housing Act, um, the Credit Reporting Act, all have the same type of a weight when it comes to the online space. Might actually get some companies to be a little bit more sensitive around how they're developing products and services. I think also legislators can push, which I think is a really interesting piece when it comes to national security, this whole ethics of algorithms and to figure out ways to create you know, not only transparency, but some ethical uh, use, look at where ethics applies to certain use cases. Maybe we're not trying to legislate the 80% because I'm still getting my shoe recommendations from my favorite shops and I like it, right? We're just maybe looking at five buckets where there's considerable harm that legislators have basically given their word to their constituents that they would not allow that to happen to them. So I think going forward, it's going to take a two-way educational process for everybody, but the train has left the station and autonomous systems and artificial uh, systems like uh, artificial intelligence systems like machine learning algorithms have been deployed and the opacity of the internet is making it more difficult for us to figure out what the pressure point is and yet the rush to regulation of legislation may actually stifle the very innovation that we're trying to actually develop. So we have a really interesting philosophical question coming forward that I think we're going to be dealing with for the next five to ten years. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. This was Shot of Science. Thank you to Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee of the Brookings Institution for joining us in this conversation. Next time, we'll be talking to Hans Klevers of the Ubrecht Institute in the Netherlands, where he grows tumors in a lab in order to develop made-to-measure cancer treatment. Annual Reviews is a nonprofit publisher dedicated to synthesizing and integrating knowledge for the progress of science and the benefit of society. 
Music Today by South London Hi-Fi.